1: Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.
0: Hello there, my name is Des Cahill and today's visitor to the island is a proud Donegal man, aren't they all? He's a clinical psychologist who worked for many years in the area of child protection and for the past five years he has been our children's ombudsman. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr Niall Muldoon. So Niall, Let's maybe begin by your own childhood in Donegal. I look back on it very, very
1: fondly. It was a small town. I have come from Donegal town, probably a population of about two thousand people. Everybody knew everybody. My parents were born and bred in that area. My mother was uh, from Killie Beggs. My father was from Donegal town. He was big into the GAA. He was involved in all the uh, sort of community things. He would have been Vincent De Paul GAA Golf Club. Um, he was involved with county board. He was involved with county council politics. So he's real typical <laughs> small town Donegal. <laughs> Finger in a lot of pies. He was. He was. Uh, I think he was on the county council when he was in the late twenties. He was chairman of the county board when he was in the late twenties. was a real mm-hmm. high achiever in that regard. He went and ran for president of GA at one stage. Really? Yeah. So it was really. Uh, it was a lovely time for me. I grew up there with two brothers and a sister, and we really had great fun. No, no big uh, holidays. No big time away. But a lot of time with friends, and really look back fondly on it
0: and living in the city now do you, do you do you sometimes miss that rural life I miss it terribly I think what I, what I really miss is the beaches you know that yeah. idea you know I come to Dublin
1: they say oh you can go to Dun Laoghaire or you can go to Killiney <laughs> you don't see sand for miles <laughs> you know it's not the same it's not the same I was with we could cycle to three different white sandy beaches you know the area yeah. Rosnalla yeah. Murva down as far as Finter and Killybegs. you know I miss that sort of idea of connecting
0: with, with uh, the sea and with, with nature it's funny I often think only because I know Tony Godwell that Donegal is a bit, still a bit of a hidden gem, like Kerry Galway, Clare Mayo. You know, the, correct. Would you agree with that? And maybe is it the no. railway line, the lack of a railway line, or what do you think? It yeah, is? I think there's a there's a natural disconnect there, and I think it's it's uh, it
1: stands out in many ways. I think what it, it's starting to change because of the Atlantic, Wild Atlantic Way. That's giving people a reason to go there and, and a and a sort of a plan. As to yeah. why you would go there, but I do think the lack of a train station or a train uh, connection from Sligo onwards means that only the hardy books will go up there. Because the, the, the people from America and they they automatically turn left and go down from Galway down towards uh, Clare and down to Kerry. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, that's fine. Leave yeah. them <laughs> off. I like it to be a hidden gem. I think it's a, it's the way to go. Yeah. And uh, the more the more of the people, anyone that goes up there, seems to fall in love with it because I think it's as nice as Ker- as Kerry, but
0: just not as as de- developed. Yeah. And that is part of the attraction as well. Correct. Yeah, Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your first musical choice, Johann Strauss. Mm. What's, what's behind
1: this now? Well, it certainly it's it's not my uh, showing off my knowledge of music, mm. but I think we grew up in, in the house. My mother was was great into music. She loved all sorts of music, from Johann Strauss through to uh, rockabilly, through to jazz. With uh, you know, she loved Bill Hilly, rock and roll. She everything was was played a, on our uh, radio radio or record player. I remember the Blue Danube especially as just sort of being that sort of background music in which we'd all pretend to be waltzing and sort of this sort of take you away. And every so often you see something on the TV about the Vienna waltz and the and the sort of the real classy atmosphere that was involved in it. And uh, just the, the music is obviously you hear it in different times all through your life and different advertisements or movies or whatever. But what really cemented it for me was that uh, my kids would have grown up with my mother coming and singing to them the same Blue Danube and I remember my youngest girl saying when she found out that it wasn't her granny who actually produced that song and <laughs> writ that, wrote that song? It wasn't a special song for her. It just—it's that idea of it transitioning through generations. Yeah. Um, I just find it a beautiful piece of music. It's probably—I mean—Strauss is the only sort of stuff I would listen to now. I wouldn't know an awful lot about classical music, but you could just the quality of it and the sort of again—you're talking 200 years old. I mean, that's what class is about. And uh, I love it. It brings back memories of running into the house. Just for carefree days playing soccer, Gaelic, rugby. Been out all day, coming back for a drink of water and a bite to eat, and then going out again and disappearing, and coming back just before day, daylight breaks the second time, maybe. So it was really, it really is that sort of uh, memory of, of long summer days. is Island Discs on RTE Radio One.
0: That's Blue Danube, Johann Strauss. The choice of today's guest, Children's Ombudsman Dr. Niall Muldoon. So Niall, you went and and studied psychology.
1: I did eventually I mean I, I left school I wasn't a, a great student I would say um, but I made a decision in, in school I didn't go and do a second language so I wasn't able to get into the university in Ireland when, back in mm-hmm. the 80s so I went and worked for the Bank of Ireland for five years and was I had a great time working there um, worked in Chewham and then came up to Balls Bridge here in Dublin. I, went, I decided then I wasn't gonna, it wasn't for me for the future, but I said I'd go back to college. Couldn't go back to college in Ireland in those days without a second language. The only college I could get into was Trinity. They didn't have mature student status at that stage either, so I couldn't get in. So eventually I went back to college in England, went to London and spent four years in London. The first year I spent digging roads and pulling cables in order to earn my keep for college. I spent three years then studying psychology over there and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed every minute of that and that sort of experience of... I lived in London. I worked for a, a Donegal man who, who installed cable TV and a big company over there, Kelly's Cables, and worked in Manchester, Liverpool, Preston, all around England just oh, doing and, that. And come back then for college? Come back to college. So I would, I would just spend a year saving money essentially and then went back to college. And again, the system was great. The EU paid for it in those days because you were transferring from one EU country to another. They covered the costs. English Council would have covered, given me a stipend throughout the year. Because I've been living there for over a year and a half at the time I got to college, and it just it afforded me the opportunity which I wouldn't have got anywhere else. I couldn't have
0: done it here in Ireland. A lot of people who, who are in a job, say like the bank, where you're getting paid and you you know you go out every Friday and have to crack, you know, and yeah. all. it's hard to go back and and get into the uh, the mindset of studying again. It was something that I found very difficult, and again,
1: my dad great man as he was, he was a real pragmatist, and he said, listen, you're, you're giving up the safe, secure, pensionable job. My, my mm. elder sister was a nurse, my brother was a guard, I was in the bank, he, Daddy was as happy as Larry. <laughs> um, but I gave up the job, and he says, what are you going to do? Cause originally I thought I'd just, you know, go off and pick grapes or something, but he, eventually when I told him I was going to college, that was grand. And I came back, just before I started college, I came back and spent four months working in the bank in Glenty's, again, just to hang around with Dad and, and do that. And he put me on the bus as I was heading to London for my first day in college, and he introduced me to a friend of my friend of his as I was getting on the bus. and He says, "This is my son, Niall. He's just left the bank for the second time," <laughs> and he just he just couldn't get his head around yeah. it because he said he was a, he also worked in a in a, an employment exchange or the social welfare office. Yeah. So he said he knew lots of people who left safe jobs <laughs> and never got them again. So I hope I've done him proud and yeah. in finding my way since then. But yeah, it was just the right thing for me. I just felt I wasn't going to be able to do myself justice in the bank. And people were where I wanted to spend my time working with
0: and when you went to London had you accommodation lined up
1: yeah as it, as it turned out my parents had separated and one of them was li- and my mother was living over there so I spent time lived with her so again that was a nice opportunity for me as well to, to bond with her in, in, a, in a different sort of setting in a mature
0: setting and then working on cables and digging the roads etc that's very different from the the cushy job yeah. in the bank
1: oh I was rubbish yes oh, yeah. I was rubbish um, it was an interesting thing I mean I, I remember Going, I was so bad that once says I drilled through glass used <laughs> a jackhammer drill to go through glass and I nearly got, got myself fired but I got the hang of it and I you know by the time I, I left after 12 months they were offering me uh, to be a site supervisor you know I just and again even that it's that idea of pushing yourself outside the comfort zone I was I found different skills I could become a leader even though I didn't know the skills of how to do it all yeah. but I could lead the, the teams um, I presume you'd make good money doing it. There was great money. I mean, yeah. I, I always tell the story that I left the bank after five years and what was a safe, secure job with. I think I had three hundred pounds in my pocket as was then. <laughs> after three months working for the cables, I had seven hundred pounds saved. <laughs> you know, so really, it really, yeah, it was good money. And again, like that, you're young and free. You don't mm. have an awful the of costs, and it just, uh, it was, it was fantastic because I
0: was able to save for university for both for all three years through doing that. So now you decide to give up the the job and go go and study in college. Was psychology absolutely what you wanted
1: to do? Or? No, again, I, I would have, when I was leaving the bank, I said I'd better figure out what I can do and what would I be best at. So I just went to a career guidance. I um, think it was a career psychologist or, uh, that gave, did all the tests that people do nowadays as a matter of course, and they pointed me in the direction. <laughs> Ironically, number one was uh, was a DJ, <laughs> which I'm glad I, I couldn't match your, your skills. But the second one was psychology. I said, you're crazy, psychology? Yeah. I couldn't do that. I'm not bright enough for that, but... Then I thought, you know, well, what else? I have to do something. But it was the right job. It's the best decision I ever made in my life because working with people, um, learning about people, helping people, uh, engaging with people, getting them over over the crisis, it's just something I really, really enjoy. And and thankfully, I seem to be good enough at it. Yeah.
0: When you went, so you're in college, and we, were there many Irish students there with you?
1: No, it was. Uh, I went out there in 1990, so it was a really interesting time to be in London. the The bombings were still on, the, but the Irish were always treated fairly well. In my place, I went to East London, and it was a really mixed bag. We had a guy called Terry Christie. Do you remember Terry yeah. Christie, the boxer? Yeah. He came back to college then um, after his. Had he the, done uh,
0: medicine? No. I'm not, sure medicine. I'm not sure what he was doing. I'm not
1: sure what he's. Remember, he was. It was. It was him that was involved in. Uh, he was a boxing and then he, he just turned back to go, go to college. So there's different interesting groups of people, all mm. sorts of walks of life from all sorts of countries. And for me, again, a small town in Donegal, this was fascinating and everything was just so interesting and, and new to learn about. And I really, really enjoyed that mix of London. It gives you the excitement it gives you and everything. Anything that's going on in the world will happen in London. Yeah, it was sure. fantastic. I really loved it.
0: And what, and what about your first job then?
1: First job then was I came back and worked with uh, adults with intellectual disability in John Gods. It was again really really rewarding time. They were sort of semi-independent people, and I was tasked with helping them to just to fulfil their life as best as possible. And I remember getting the opportunity again very unusual stuff that we brought them out to discos. We brought them to, up to Donegal on holidays. We you know really got a chance to engage with them and get them out into the into the community as much mm-hmm. as possible and that would have been in over in Palmerston in Dublin and down in uh, Selbridge as well really really enjoyable time spent that about a year and a half doing that and then I went back and did a master's in my in psychology in Trinity and then went on and did 10 years working with uh with John and God's place called the Granada Institute working with uh, adults who had offended against children that was a really, really challenging but very rewarding job as well.
0: Offender against children—that so yeah. was that abuse.
1: Abuse of children, yeah. yeah. So it was—it was sort of physical,
0: you, sexual, what all—all man- all manners, yeah. yeah.
1: So again, it was—it was working with a very interesting cohort, a very challenging cohort, people that wouldn't a lot of people wouldn't have worked with before, and it just—it—it it was really um, cutting edge therapy uh, at a time that there wasn't many people
0: doing it in the world. It strikes me now that your work. In this area, there's a dark side to it. Or like, mm. or like some of us who aren't... I, I, I get upset talking about it even. Um, and therefore maybe shy away from it. And maybe a lot of us are like that. And therefore, we don't face up to the issues and the problems. Yeah, I think I think that's,
1: that's fair. I think mean, people, people want to believe that the li- life is, is good and that the world is, is safe and fair. And I think it's that's hugely important way to see it. And it is. But I think until we face up to working with the people who have done the bad stuff and try to make sure they don't do it again. You won't guarantee that. You can never be sure that everybody will change. But if you don't try, then that's when we're really letting the children down. You know, if we if we know somebody has hurt a child, it's incumbent on us to make sure they don't do it again, and locking it up is one way of doing it. Generally, that's for a number of years. But if you can change their mindset and work on them in a way that allows them to stop it themselves, then that's a much stronger protection. Mm. Um, and I think it is. It's difficult to talk about. It's no doubt about it. It's a dark side. I found it. You know, it's you had to. I had to work a lot to keep uh, the balance. But again, it's very rewarding too. So if you know somebody has hurt maybe two children every year and you know they haven't hurt anyone for four years because of therapy, then that's a big progress, you yeah. know. And it's it's an important part of the work that people have to do, and I think it's something we, we uh, in Ireland, can get better at still. You know, we still need to work on that sort
0: of thing. I oh, no, will chat broader about the role of, of the ombudsman, but mm. um, so you needed mental strength, did you? Yeah, yeah, I think
1: so. I mean, it's sort of a... An ability to, to deal with the, with the tough stuff and still not let it drag me down. you know Exactly, and go home or
0: go and m- yeah. meet your friends and all that. Yeah, and, and again,
1: I think that's probably where I was lucky that I grew up with a, with a sporting background and GA was something I always turned to. I, you know, I went out when I was young enough and I would go out and play ball and kickball and, and train hard and it just gave me an escape where I could leave stuff behind me. And then as I got older, I would have just gone on to coaching and stuff like that. So yeah. just I always separated them out that way and allowed me to uh, keep the sanity and, and keep the enthusiasm.
0: Your second musical choice Mike and the Mechanics
1: Yeah Mike and the Mechanics um, in the living years I suppose it's again essentially my dad was of of his age he was sort of a great guy did a lot of work for the community did a lot of work for us and loved loved him as a father but he was never uh, demonstrative there was never um, saying I would love you or anything like that Mm I think one of the great things I see nowadays, I like go in there to schools all the time and you, you go in there just around nine o'clock when the parents are leaving and you can hear an echo of I love you, I love you, I love you mm-hmm. all over the place. And it's such, so different to 30 years ago, 40 years ago when I was growing up. So I suppose what, it, what that does for me, that song reminds me of my dad died. He was, he was a real hard worker, never probably six days a week, hard work all the time. He got cancer on the 30th of March, 1994, diagnosed and he was dead 30, on the 30th of April 1994 so in four weeks time and he still wanted to go to the, go to work on the day we had to stop him getting out of the car on the day he died he okay. just said that drive but on the day he was diagnosed was the one and only time I said I love you and I just I think that song allows me to say thank god at least I said it once in the living years as opposed to later on I think a lot of us leave it too late especially in the older generation I think mm-hmm. nowadays as I say the children and their parents are much more open to it and grandparents will say it more easily. So this was 1994. It wasn't the, given, the, the ordinary thing to say it and it had always been my intention for two or three years to say it and to open up to him. It never got the opportunity and unfortunately the opportunity came at that stage when he was diagnosed but I was so glad I've done it every time I look back on it and the song just just says it in a better way than I can.
0: It's such an Irish thing of our generation, isn't Correct, it? correct, yeah.
1: Des's Island Discs on
0: RTE Radio 1. That's Mike and the Mechanics in the Living Years, the choice of today's guest, the Children's Ombudsman, Dr Niall Muldoon. So Niall, becoming the Children's Ombudsman, it's a big job. Tell us exactly what it entails. I mean, how many cases would you deal with every year? Essentially, the, 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 the way I describe it to, to children and young people is that it's, it's my job to
1: promote and protect the rights of all children in Ireland. So there's 1.2 million children in Ireland. And anywhere where they engage with the government or the state... Is where I can intervene or work with. So that could be the hospitals, it could be schools, it could be uh, housing, it could be injustice, uh, detention centers, things like that. Um, And my job then is to take complaints if they're not happy. So essentially, if they've complained to the organization and said, not happy with this, and they get a result and they're not happy with that result, then they can come to us. We were set up to be a free, independent alternative to court. So before we were set up, the only way you could challenge the, the state was to sue them. And obviously that was unfair on anybody who couldn't afford that sort of option. We get probably between sixteen and 1,700 complaints a year from people and from children and adults all over the country about various different things. Mostly education would be the majority of our complaints. So again, that makes sense. You
0: give us an example.
1: Children who may not have access to a special needs assistant, children who have difficulty maybe getting school transport, the curriculum and the way it's taught in certain ways. Some for a long time, there one of the biggest issues was uh, access to schools because you need if you weren't baptised, you know the yeah. sort of baptism barriers they used to call it. If, if schools were, were over oversubscribed, a lot of issues like that, bullying, is, how do schools handle bullying as well, is, is one of the consistent issues for us that we are still trying to get grapple with and get better at. Is is that a world problem? Are
0: we are,
1: are we typical? Are we average in terms of bullying? Which is I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think from my point of view, it's one of the things I put, I've slated to try and work on over the next while is the sort of concept that bullying is still an issue in schools. and We have a, an anti-bullying policy in every school in the country, four and a half thousand schools, but it still seems to be an issue. And I think one of the things that's coming up now that I've, in the last sort of two or three months, is this issue of racism within, within schools as well at times that is, is hidden under the term bullying. And it's a slightly, you know, we need to look at that as well. And I think that's one of the things that Black Lives Matters will, will start to r- raise up for us. But I do think uh, how schools bully, handle bullying is so individualised. You know, we haven't got a, a handle on how best to do it. And, and there's lots of schools doing a great job with that. But still, there seems to be uh, an issue where it's not consistent and it's not clearly communicated. And a lot of schools will do a great job, but they won't communicate that effort back to the parents. And then the parents are left saying, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just something I think we can work on, certainly, for the, and, and get better at.
0: Well, it's great that the Ombudsman's Office will, will fight for children and, and, and for their rights, but presumably you have to deal with different agencies and government agencies, and do they go, deep sigh, or oh, here comes the Ombudsman... Uh,
1: I, I have no doubt, there's no point we deny they probably do at times, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. But I think that's our, your job. That's our job, and it's, it's our job is to try. My my target is always to try and improve systems. You know, to try and make things better so that we don't have to come back to you the next time. Uh, what I always compare it to is if you run a restaurant, you've got to ask your your clientele how you're doing. And if a clientele come client comes to you and says I'm complaining about X, you try and work this so X never happens again. There's never a problem again. But I think public servants haven't been used to that sort of way of thinking they try to, complaints tend to be a bad thing that they want to ignore. So I'm trying to get to the the sort of thinking that let's use complaints to improve our system so you'll never see me again. If I can do myself out of a job, that's great. But we we would have issues from child deaths all the way through to to school transport. So it's a whole range across Department of Education, Justice, Health, Children, um, the whole range of things. And as they see me coming, I mean, one of the things that we do is to try and work with with the the organisation, the agency, so that when we make recommendations, they will follow through on them. If they don't, we I have the power to create a, what's called a special report and bring that to the Oireachtas and challenge them and say, listen, you shouldn't have done that. In the 15, 16 years now that we've been in being, we haven't had to do that yet. We've, yeah. we've suggested, we it, it, yeah. suggested it once yeah. or twice yeah. and it tends to focus the mind yeah. and the recommendations get followed through on and I think that's our idea is we constantly try to evolve and, and change and improve things so that if they don't like us coming that's fine but they will try to change us uh, accept the changes that we recommend most of the time
0: It's a huge area Niall I mean and would need great resources I presume you never have enough resources No I mean you, you'll never have enough resources I mean, I'm mean i lucky
1: I've been able to grow my resources in the last number of years this is about creating a system that will self-evolve mm-hmm. as well it's about creating a system that, that looks at children puts them at the heart of the decision making many of the systems like whether it's education or health will often think what's the system designed for they won't say what does the child need within that system you know simple examples are a child who is in foster care with severe disability is seen by Tusla as being a child in foster care and they ignore the disability and it's seen by the HSE as a child with disability and ignore the factor in foster care that's the system looking after itself instead of putting that child and saying what does this child need if we get to that stage where those those organizations are thinking that way then there'll be much less need for us to be involved and the resources we need would can go somewhere else. And I think that's what we need to get to, is the child-centred thinking. And most of those, if you child-centred thinking for home for housing, if you child-centred planning for health, all the adults would benefit from it enormously as well. You know, even within health, they can't say exactly how many children are on a waiting list in the whole of health. They can't say what they spend on children. That sort of thinking needs to come into the system, and hopefully, who knows with the new government we might we might start to move in that direction.
0: It's clearly a slow process are, 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 you, are you making headway? Yeah, it is a slow yeah. process,
1: but I think the the one again within our office we're very clear that this two the two Ps are crucial. you know it's it's patience and persistence. Um, it will take time to change any system. systems yeah. are built up to to protect themselves. Our job is to try and improve them so that the the client gets looked after better, but it is slow. but again, I have a, a six year term. And part of my job is to go at it hard and, and, and full of energy
0: and try and keep at that. So that's that's my target. Good for you. I mean, it's such an important role. Your, your final musical choice, Nine Will do is... Elvis. Elvis, yeah. Is is this the young Donegal fella come out? This this is me, yeah. This is me, yeah. (laughs) The the slick back hair,
1: yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I listen, I've loved them all all since I was a child. Um, I would have watched most of his movies, you know, not not for any acting abilities or anything, but just the music, I think, was just. It's that sort of upbeat, lively, high quality. I think he's a great singer. I think he's a great uh, way of. Choo- choosing songs and making songs work um, I love the rock and roll I love the way he sings the, the, the slow songs I think he was it's a shame he was taken so early I think in, in this day and age he would probably get to, to cooperate and collaborate with so many fabulous people who mm-hmm. really know his genius and I do think he, he sort of he was the role model where other people learned not to do what he did yeah. and it's you know one of the highlights of my, my life was that my wife bought me a, a road trip to to memphis yeah. for my 40th birthday myself and a couple of pals and over there and it was it was just great crack you know it wasn't it was just just something to take off the bucket list and this song i think is it also reminds me of my time working at the bank of ireland at balls bridge there was a a lovely porter who worked there a lovely older man with a fabulous tenor voice and he used to sing this song all the time and it was just beautiful and then as i grew older and started listening to the actual lyrics i think it's the story of any great love is sort of the wonder of you and how you'll Put up with me no matter what, and I think it really is a, a beautiful love song from my point of view.
0: Keep fighting the fight on behalf of our children, will Muldoon. Thank you so much f- for joining us today, and and congratulations on on your work.
1: is Island Discs on RTE Radio One.